This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Lego Technic. Lego Technic isn't just another set of Lego bricks. It's real-life advanced building. Some sets have interconnecting rods, working gears, even real electric motors. Technic is for the engineers, the petrol heads, your STEAM students. From sports cars to hydraulic movers, if you build for power and speed, then visit lego.com technic. To find your next Technic build and see how Lego recently built a life-size drivable supercar out of Technic parts. That's lego.com slash Technic, T-E-C-H-N-I-C. Lego Technic, build for real. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 21st, 2018. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we're all about making science more scientific. It may sound convoluted, but researchers are turning science back on itself to better understand the enterprise as a whole. We're going to hear first from freelance science journalist Yaf DeVries about his story on meta-analysis. Why are there so many of these studies? And why are there so many conflicting ones? And we're also going to hear from three researchers about their battles with big scientific myths. For example, can you make a big contribution to science after the age of 30? Einstein said no. The evidence says yes. First up in our special on the science of making science better, we're going to focus on meta-analysis. This is when you round up all the information about a scientific question, crunch the numbers, and come out with an answer possibly a definitive one. Yop de Vries, a freelance science journalist based in the Netherlands, is here to talk about a feature story he wrote on the problems with meta-studies and what can be done about them. Hi, Yop. Hi there. The meta-analyses, these types of studies are intended to incorporate many experimental studies and let you come away with strong conclusions. They're supposed to be 
an objective way to mediate different areas of research when the studies are in conflict. But instead, they seem to be causing a lot of conflict. Some research groups are fighting meta-analyses wars. Can you describe how these wars unfold? Let's talk about, for example, violence and video games. That controversy has been, it's been going on like for decades now. And every time when there's a school shooting, this debate starts again. And there were all these different studies with different results. And then they think, okay, let's do a meta-analysis and see what the evidence, the body of evidence says. The two meta-analyses I focus on in my uh, article are one from 2009, Christopher Ferguson and Kilburn. They came up with a, with a meta-analysis concluding that when you take all the evidence together and correct for certain things like studies that were not published, mm-hmm. <laughs> then you end up with no effect. No linkage between video games and violence. It's, it's like, uh, it's insignificant, nothing. Right. But then another team, Brad Bushman and Craig Anderson and some others, Bushman and Anderson had been in that field for over 20 years. They came up with a counter meta-analysis and they did find an effect. And then there's a whole debate. What was the difference between these two studies? Were they looking at the same body of research? But what you first do is you collect all the studies, but you, you have to sort of predefine criteria for which studies you regard relevant and good enough. So one is based on search terms and another is based on like certain quality criteria. And then there are these corrections like, okay, you assume that there are certain studies missing and you have statistical methods to correct for that, which are never perfect, but usually like better than nothing. Or you try to collect all these unpublished studies. And that's one of the main differences between these two. Like the first team, they tried to find and correct for this publication bias. And the other team said, no, we'll go look for all the studies that were not published, like PhD theses, other studies uh, from other groups. They said, well, if we include all those, we don't have to correct anymore. And then they started debating, like the one team said, well, you're only regarding your own studies and your, the studies that favor your conclusion as good quality. And the other said, well, you did statistical analysis. That's not correct. And, <laughs> you know, that's, in these cases, it's, it's often, you can see where the, where the debate comes from. Like they have right. their own work and they have their own ideas. Other examples that you include that kind of highlight this meta-analysis fight include positive parenting, mm-hmm. antidepressants, and so many other things. And these topics are often important to public health and important to policy decisions. What are some solutions to these problems? How can we stop these fights and get clarity on fields where there's, there's been a lot of conflict? There are a lot of what they call the researcher degrees of freedom. So even if you try to do, to make it as objective as possible, depending on what your real question is, what your criteria are, you, you get to different answers. Instead of making it more objective, you have to make it more transparent and showing and making these decisions and these judgment calls and take this analysis in the, instead of that type of analysis because of this and this and this. And then you can really sort of show to your readers, to your colleagues, why this is the the relevant answer. And on the same idea about transparency, another thing that people are trying is registering experiments. How would that help? If you don't do that, it's very easy to manipulate. What's even better is because another problem is when you try to combine all these studies, they're all like different and it seems very straightforward, but it's very difficult to combine all those very different different studies. So if you already plan to do a meta-analysis and you already adjust your experimental studies, so that you can easily combine them, Mm. that also makes your meta-analysis stronger. One of the problems you mentioned earlier was that 
the missing studies, the studies with negative results that probably never get published. Is that something that'll be helped with this trial register, this experimental registration is you get all those nulls? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's indeed. That's, if all those studies are pre-registered, then you have an oversight of what's there and you don't have to do all these weird statistical tricks to correct. In one of these studies that you mentioned in your story, researchers said, let's stop fighting this is amazing. And let's do studies, all work together and combine them into a meta-analysis. How did that work out? And, and what was the, the area that they were researching? It was in the, in the debate on uh, ego depletion. So it's about whether um, your um, self-control can be um, depleted, just like a muscle can be depleted. It was a very popular idea. It's a lot of articles in the popular press about, and even a, a whole book by one of those researchers, Roy Baumeister. But then people started trying to replicate, and they didn't replicate a lot of those findings. Instead of trying to replicate all these single studies, we, we start all over again. So we set up mm-hmm. a lot of more or less similar experiments together, adjust them to, so that they can be easily combined, and then draw this conclusion based on this on this meta-analysis. And they they couldn't find the effects. Right. They can never say it's not there, but uh, it's never a total debate down there. An intermediate option between these two that we've already talked about, registering your trial and all working together to redo the research, is to agree on the terms of a meta-analysis. So have everybody come together and actually just agree before instead of doing competing ones. They call it an adversary uh, collaboration. It can really be a solution, although based on some of the examples that I uh, mentioned, you could also imagine that there would still then be debate on whether what would be the real relevant question and what should be the real right criteria. But at least then you have agreed upon that upfront and then afterwards it will be no longer up for debate. It, that would be of nice. Of course, there will, there will always be different ideas yeah. on certain topics. But it's good to know, to realize that it is a human endeavor. That's also good for us as journalists so that we don't just think, oh, oh I found one meta-analysis, so now I know this is the right. real, this is it, this is the truth. So there's a, there's a really nice graphic with your feature, and it shows this exploding growth in the number of meta-studies. So two questions about that. Is this adding to the problem? Is having more and more of these making more arguments and then also why are we seeing so many more meta-analyses come out? Yeah, it's a combination of, of factors. Sometimes it's just pharmaceutical industries is uh, paying a lot for meta-analyses. Or, and another reason is that for just an academic scientist, it's also very attractive because it's relatively cheap. You don't need a lab. You just need a computer and some handbooks. And it's relatively well-cited, those papers. John Ioannidis, our sort of famous meta-researcher, that I've talked to also for this article, has been looking at it. And I said, the great majority of all these extra that have come up, come over the years, they're redundant. They're mm-hmm. of very poor quality, no added value. Yeah. You caution me not to get jaded <laughs> and just assume all these conflicts are personal wars. I mean, every part of science is human and we all have to make decisions. And if we're transparent about it, that legitimizes it often. But Sometimes when I, you know, I see these arguments, I just think, oh, well, this person just has an axe to grind or that person is cherry picking. So what's the argument for doing this? Why shouldn't we just throw out all of these meta-analyses? Well, I think that then you would have to do that for science as a whole. <laughs> uh, I, I think, and, and that's what Edward Miguel, he said, 
yeah, okay. I could see that people, well, they would say, oh, you are already in this field and you're proving your own point. But you have to look at the science and not, oh, just look at my science. But what question are they trying to answer? So if you as a bystander or as a policymaker or as a doctor are interested in the solution, don't just look at, oh, this is the meta-analysis on this topic, but what question were they trying to address? Then it still has value. And I think it has more value than single studies if they are performed well. What are some things to look out for if you're reading a meta-analysis, either if you're a journalist or a researcher trying to get the lay of the land? Before I started with this project, I had no idea. <laughs> I do have a background in epidemiology. but So one of the things is, are they trying to solve the problem of publication bias, either by applying several methods to correct or to, to look out for, for more studies? Did they predetermine their criteria? Is their question really clear? Does it sound indeed relevant and not just a basic like general question without Does any it work? utility? Yeah. The number of studies they've included sort of an indicator, but it doesn't say everything. Right. What kind of problems do meta-analyses solve? Is it when there's no way to do an experiment? You kind of have a bunch of correlations. What are good times when this is kind of a useful tool? Sometimes it's just you have a lot of different studies with comparable design, but not exactly the same. Yeah. And then you just, you get higher precision because you sort of have combined data so you get a more accurate answer than one single study would do. And sometimes it's trying to see whether all these different studies that are looking at slightly different things in different population, looking at the same, the same drug or a younger or older people, and then you're trying to combine, okay, whether the drug in general has an effect. And then sometimes when you have a lot of small studies, then it can help to have stronger, but also, yeah. And if it's just like a fuzz and you say, okay, now we need some kind of method to. Uh... <laughs> well, now that you've been through the wars yourself, do you feel like this is something that's going to be resolved? Are journals and societies and funders trying to tamp down on some of this? I think not, not just after reading my article, I think that one small, <laughs> small step. <laughs> but I think that we are starting to realize that we should look at meta-analysis in a different way without turning in to a certain postmodern fatalism and thinking, oh, it's just, it's just an opinion because it's not like that. It's just, if you do it well, it's more than an opinion. Yeah. Okay. Yab, thank you so much. Thank you. Yab Delries is a science journalist based in the Netherlands. You can find a link to his story and the rest of the Science of Science package at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a quick spin through the rest of the meta meta research package in this week's issue. Next up, I talk with three scientists that have worked to debunk some of the oldest myths about science uttered by the likes of Newton, Planck, and Einstein. This week's issue is all about science as an endeavor, an enterprise, how studies are done, how they are communicated, and how they are received. And researchers are using the tools of science to pick apart these processes and overturn some old wisdom about how these things work. I spoke to a few researchers who have looked into these long-standing ideas. They questioned Isaac Newton. Do we stand on the shoulders of giants? They questioned Max Planck. Does truth win out because its opponents die? And Albert Einstein. Can scientists make great contributions after the age of 30? The answer, according to the research, 
climb atop the shoulders of giants and wait for the funerals. I know that's a riddle. We're going to unpack it. First, we have Ben Jones. He's the Gund Professor of Entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management. Hi, Ben. Hi, Sarah. So Einstein said, a person who has not made his great contribution to science before the age of 30 will never do so. What do we empirically know about scientific productivity after the age of 30? We've learned that this is one of the rare cases where Einstein appears to have been wrong. What does productivity look like after 30 in science? We see that productivity tends to peak in middle age. If you look at the main part of the the distribution, it tends to be in late 30s, early 40s. And these are people who have made groundbreaking insights and Nobel Prize winners. So they have kind of a documented status. Right. So you could look at great achievements. You could look at the age at which people did the thing for which they will win the Nobel Prize. You mm-hmm. could look at the great technological inventions of the 20th century, say the MRI machine or the light bulb. And you can look more generally at particular fields and look at great scholars, National Mm -hmm. Academies members. But this has changed over time. This number is skewing a little bit older. Does this reflect differences in career paths for sciences? In fact, the average age, for example, at which people did Nobel Prize winning work went up by about six to eight years over the course of the 20th century. It looks like what's really happening is that people are increasingly delayed in Mm -hmm. the start of their innovative career. They spend much more of their 20s in the education phase and less in the post-education innovative phase. Why do this besides uh, to debunk a little bit of Einstein's legacy? It matters a lot for how we fund researchers, who we fund. You know, this belief that people are at their best when they're very young can divert resources in that direction. We certainly see that in entrepreneurship, for example, beyond sort of whether, you know, funders or research institutions support people at different ages. I think it's a question of perspective on oneself. You know, if you believe that your best days are behind you, you know, psychologically, you might not try as hard. You might not think you're as capable. You might make different choices. But if you understand that, in fact, you're peaking later, that gives people, I think, more incentive to keep going and to uh, keep trying. Next on the chopping block, Max Planck. Planck wrote, A new scientific truth does not triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather because its opponents eventually die. Pierre Azoulay is a professor of management at the Sloan School of Management at MIT. Pierre is here to talk about a ghoulish experiment that looked at the deaths of superstars and the impact of it on their fields. What made you decide to look into the death of researchers and their impact of that on the field? My uh, co-author, Josh Gravzevin, and I, we were very interested in the role of superstars in the progress of science. Our sort of prior was that superstars make the people around them better. You know, they would be missed if they disappeared in some sense. But I vividly remember, you know, a senior scientist telling us, you know, the problem with superstars is that they tend to suck out all the oxygen in the room. Yeah. When we began and we looked only at the effect of superstars dying on the collaborators of those superstars, once the superstar goes away, the font of ideas in some sense uh, dries up collaborators suffer. And we found that. But it turns out that that person was correct. It's just that the scope of the 
superstars sucking all the oxygen out of the, the room doesn't apply to collaborators. It applies to non-collaborators. So it's people who wouldn't enter the field because the superstar was there. Exactly. What do these new people do to the field? Well, it turns out that they bring new and important ideas into those domains. They tend to use different keywords. They tend to reference different types of research, more likely to be from outside the field. But also those papers themselves in the future will go on to be disproportionately highly cited. So this matters in the aggregate. Yeah. So this sounds like superstars might not be all they're cracked up to be. What you want to conclude here is not that we should start offing superstars <laughs> to make place <laughs> for new people. Yeah. I think that would be the wrong conclusion. Our paper provides sort of a basis for creating policies that try to level the playing field a little bit, like preserving space for young investigators in grant competition. You also have to sort of recognize that, you know, science is a tournament and there are lots of things you do that might be very positive to get to the top of the mountain. The fact that once you're in the top of the mountain, not everything you, you do necessarily has beneficial aspects doesn't mean that we should be weary of people trying to compete extremely hard to try to exert an influence. There are a lot of good things you do in the process of trying to be in a situation to actually control the intellectual direction of your field. Now let's hear from Isaac Newton. Here's a slightly paraphrased quote from him saying, If I have seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Heidi Williams, an associate professor in MIT's Department of Economics, is here to help us with this one. Hi, Heidi. Hi, sir. So this seems intuitively true. I mean, yeah, giants aren't real, but it is true. Science seems to build on itself. But the issue here is quantifying it. How important is it to have that access to past research to move ahead? Heidi, you talk about two experiments in your piece and how they tackle this problem. What what approaches did they take to quantifying the value of access to past research? One of the two papers, which is some of my own work, looked at human genes that were sequenced during the so-called race to sequence the human genome. Genes are curated very carefully by the scientific community in a way that they actually have a gene equivalent of a social security number. PubMed, which is an index of biomedical publications, uses those ID numbers to curate which scientific publications are related to those genes. And then you can also look at those ID numbers in catalogs of medical diagnostic tests. Where does access come into this? How is it possible to block the use of a gene in research? In that experiment, basically, we were comparing two different regimes. One was the publicly funded Human Genome Project. All of the genes that were sequenced under the Human Genome Project went into the public domain within 24 hours. In contrast, the private firm that was simultaneously working on sequencing the genome, Celera, they held the sequenced genetic data with a form of essentially copyright. There were some restrictions on the use of the data. By any objective standard, it was actually a very light set of restrictions. So scientists were free to use the data for scientific research free of charge. But if you wanted to use the data in commercial research, you needed to negotiate a licensing agreement with Celera. And when you compared those two sources of genetic sequences, what did you see? What were the differences like? What you find is that there was about 30% less scientific research and product development that came out of the genes that were sequenced by Solera relative to otherwise similar genes that were sequenced at the same time by the Human Genome Project. Let's also talk about the other study you mentioned in your piece, this one on access to biomaterials. 
Yeah, so the other study was done by one of my colleagues at MIT Sloan, as well as a colleague from Boston University. And what they were looking at is what are called biological resource centers. So these are essentially institutions who have an objective of certifying and disseminating knowledge. There are biomaterials that are accessed to these institutions, and they're then sort of curated in a way that is meant to provide easier access to other scientists to reuse those materials. What kind of access restrictions do they have or not have on those materials? What they did is that they there's a paper essentially documenting the discovery that was submitted to the center. And then they looked at how citations to the papers changed when the materials like the cell lines got submitted to one of these centers. The results of that analysis suggest that when new materials get accessed to the biological resource centers, you get a big increase in citations to the papers that are linked to the discoveries. And so it suggests that basically scientists making discoveries in their labs is, of course, very useful, but is less socially useful than if we can sort of have the access to those discoveries be set up through an institution like these biological resource centers, which have a goal of making it less costly for other people to access those discoveries. Pierre Azoulay, Heidi Williams, and Ben Jones write about making science more scientific in a special section this week. Also in the section, we have stories on how to identify research hotspots ripe for breakthroughs, how to deal with congestion on the frontiers of science, and tracing the ripple effects of retractions. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts, or you can listen on the science website, sciencemag.org slash podcast. There you'll also find links to the research and news stories discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the Science Podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the show music, additional music provided by When When. A special thanks to Brad Weibel for editing the package on Science Myths. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. <laughs>